0: Most of you probably have seen the movie The Blind Side. You'll notice the picture up on the screen. It was a great movie. If you've never rented the movie before, I'd encourage you to rent it. It's about a man by the name of Michael Orr. Michael Orr was pretty much an orphan growing up. He's a modern-day example of adoption. He was born in Memphis, Tennessee. He was one of 12 children. His dad died when he was young. His dad was derelict. His mother was a cocaine addict. And basically, he was in 11 schools in nine years, and he was passed from one home to another in foster care. And a couple by the name of Leanne and Sean Touroy adopted him, and basically, they provided tutors for him. You'll notice the picture up on the screen there. That's the family that adopted him. And they provided tutors for him to help him go through school, and because he was such an athletic person, he went to University of Mississippi, and eventually he went to the NFL and he played for three particular teams. He's actually a committed Christian. And it's interesting that this family that adopted him, they tell the story about the time when Michael Orr was taking Taco Bell because this family owned 60 franchises, And so when Michael Orr would go to the Taco Bell's, he would take the food and he would hide it in his room. And one day his mother found all this food stashed away and she asked him, why are you storing this food? To which his reply was, because I'm so scared, I don't know where my next meal is gonna be coming from. And so this was the mentality he was raised with. But over time, he received healing in his life because this particular family adopted him. Well, that's the theme of what we've been looking at the last several weeks, and that is the subject of adoption. So I invite you to turn to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4 says that you and I have been adopted as sons and daughters into the family of God. Galatians chapter 4. Now, remember, the Apostle Paul wrote this particular letter, and we're looking at verses 12 through 31 here. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Galatian Christians. They were Gentile Christians. He established churches in this area on his first missionary journey. And as soon as he left, some Judaizers came in who were false teachers. And basically they were saying that believing in Jesus is good, but it's not enough. You've got to keep the laws of Moses. You've got to be circumcised. And so what they were doing was they were imposing Jewish legalism upon these Gentile Christians. Now, obviously, these Gentiles couldn't become Jewish in terms of genetics, but this was sort of a ceremonial thing. And so, in addition to faith in Jesus Christ, they were adding to the gospel. It was no longer an organic gospel. Simple faith in Jesus Christ leads to salvation. They were saying it's faith plus works. And so, basically, what they were saying, in a sense, is you got to earn your salvation. And anytime anybody adds anything, To the simple gospel of faith alone in Jesus Christ, they are corrupting the gospel, and what they're doing is they're throwing people into confusion. And so Paul has to write this epistle, and basically what he's doing throughout the whole book is he's giving arguments as to why you're saved by faith alone. He uses arguments from the Old Testament, and then he uses personal arguments from his own life, and then of course, as we're going to see today, Paul pleads with the Galatians not to go back to this false gospel. Now, in chapter four, what he's talking about is how you and I, when we accept Jesus Christ by faith alone, we become sons and daughters of God. The Judaizers were saying, you become a son and daughter of God, or you become a child of Abraham by faith and keeping the law of Moses. Paul is saying, no, you become a son and daughter of God. You're adopted into God's family when you simply trust In Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and so in the process of arguing why we're saved by faith alone he gives us characteristics of sons and daughters of God and if you and I know Jesus Christ we've been adopted into God's family we have royal blood flowing through our veins we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ we have all the benefits of being in the family of God but what are the characteristics of a son and daughter of God? There are many characteristics in the New Testament, but Paul shares several of them with us this morning. Let me review the first three that we looked at last week. First of all, I noted for you that sons and daughters of God have been delivered from spiritual slavery to the law. We looked at that last week. Secondly, I noted for you that sons and daughters of God possess intimacy with God. We cry, Abba, Father. We have that personal Papa relationship with God. And number three, I noted for you last week that sons and daughters of God avoid going back into slavery. That could be the slavery of false religion, or it could be the slavery of the former manner of life that God delivered us out of. We all have a past. Some of us have a more checkered past than others, but the fact of the matter is, as Christians... If we're not on guard, we can easily slip back into our former lifestyles. And Paul says two true children of God do not go back to their former manner of life. Now for this morning, we look at the fourth characteristic of a son and daughter of God, and that is they listen to truth and they speak the truth. They listen to truth and they speak the truth. And beginning in verse 12, he's going to get more personal here. He's going to get more passionate. He's not going to be as theological as he has been in the previous chapters. Notice what he says in verse 12. I plead with you. There's the personal cry. I plead with you, brothers and sisters. Notice they're believers. He calls them brothers and sisters. And he says, I want you to become like me. What did he mean by like that? Well, Paul was free from Jewish legalism. Even though Paul was a Jew, even though Paul was a fastidious Pharisee, Paul had become free from those laws to be saved, and so he says, I want you to become like me, free from the law, he says, because I became like you. He says, even though I'm Jewish, I as it were became like a Gentile. I did not subject myself to the law of God in order to be saved. Now obviously Paul did that prior to his conversion, but once Paul came to Christ, he put away that stuff as a means of salvation. And then he says this, he says, you did me no wrong. In other words, they treated him with love when he first went to Galatia. Now, how did they not do Paul any wrong? Well, he tells us in verse 13, he says, as you know, when he got to Galatia and he planted those churches, he says, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Now, we don't know what this illness was that Paul was dealing with. Some people think when he did his first missionary journey he contracted malaria and this word illness can be used of persecution but whatever it was paul when he planted the churches in galatia was struck with some type of illness and the galatians as we're going to see treated him with kindness they did him no wrong they exerted love towards him and by the way This shows us that God can often use illness and sickness as a means of good. He says it was because of my sickness that I had the opportunity to preach the gospel. You know, sickness is one of those things that's part of the curse and none of us likes it, but God often uses sickness. In fact, some of the prosperity teachers will tell you it's a curse and they're right. It is part of the curse. But they say God's will is for never any Christian to get sick, and what he's done is he's provided healing in the atonement, and so all you have to do is name it and claim it, because Jesus bore our sickness for us. Therefore, if we ask him to heal us, God guarantees healing in this life. And there is a half-truth there. We should ask God to heal us when we're sick. God does heal his children, but listen carefully. He does not heal everybody. That is a false doctrine. And it gives people false hope because you and I know people that have, we've prayed for that have been sick before and God did not heal them and they were godly people. God can use sickness to accomplish good in your life. It teaches us dependency upon him. It breaks us of our self-will. And so Paul says, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. God took this negative and he turned it into a positive. And God always does that th- that when we suffer in our life. He says in verse 14, Even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. When I suffered this sickness, whether it was malaria or whether it was his persecution, remember he went into Galatia and he was stoned and left for dead? He may have had some wounds, And so the Galatians were quick to nurse those wounds. They did not treat him with scorn or contempt. They didn't ignore Paul. Instead, he says in verse 14, You welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. He says, Do you remember when I got to Galatia and I'm suffering from this sickness? He says, You treated me with kindness, you treated me with love, you bound up my wounds, you provided me Campbell's soup and Theraflu. You took care of me. In fact, you treated me as if it were Christ Jesus himself. But notice he says in verse 15, where then is your blessing of me now? See the personal appeal here? He's remembering what they did for him in the past, and he's saying, why is your tune changing towards me? You loved me at the beginning. When I was sick, you took care of me. You nursed me back to health, but all of a sudden, you're treating me with distance, you're treating me with contempt. He says, I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Now, this can be taken literally or this can be taken figuratively. Some people believe that Paul had eye trouble. They believe that the malaria may have caused some eye trouble in his life because if you read Galatians chapter 6 verse 12, he says this, see what large letters I'm writing with. And the reason he wrote with large letters is because he had a problem with his eyesight. Whether it was caused when he was blinded on the road to Damascus or he contracted malaria or some disease that caused eye trouble, he says, you Galatians love me so much, you not only nursed me back to health, he says, but you would have given me your eyes as it were, which may imply he had eye problems or what Paul is doing is he's saying this figuratively, you would have given me your most precious possession. It's a figure of speech, because in ancient times, to give someone your eyes was your most precious possession. And of course, that's still today. We know not having sight would be a terrible tragedy. And so Paul says, you loved me when I first got into Galatia. You treated me with kindness and love. You nursed me back to health. But I want you to notice what he says in verse 16. And this gets us to the crux of what he's saying here about children of God, sons and daughters of God, speak the truth, and they listen to the truth. Notice what he says in verse 16. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? On the one hand, you love me, you receive me, but as soon as these Judaizers began to deceive you, as soon as they began to infect you, and I told you, hey guys, watch out for these false teachers... They don't have your best interest in mind. They're preaching a false gospel. They're leading you into confusion. When Paul confronted them in a spirit of love. And he told them the truth. You know what happened? They backed off. They became cool in their relationship towards Paul. And so here's the implication. Children of God, sons and daughters of God. They not only speak the truth. They listen to the truth. See, the Galatians heard what Paul was saying, but they did not want to receive the truth because Paul spoke the truth to them. And listen carefully. Paul didn't tell them what they wanted to hear. Paul told them what they needed to hear. Now, the Bible says we're to speak the truth in a spirit of love. You got to have that balance because you and I know people that speak the truth, but they don't have a heart of love. And we're all guilty of that at times. On the other hand, some people are all love and they're no truth. And you got to have that balance. Sometimes people don't want to hear the truth. In fact, you and I would agree that when we tell people the truth, whether it be our spouse or children, maybe family members, maybe coworkers, when people don't like what you're saying, you know what it does? Sometimes it alienates relationships. And that's hard because in the ministry, there are times where I and Pastor John, we've had to deal with tough situations throughout our ministry. I can think of several instances in my ministry where someone up and left their spouse for no biblical reasons, and I had to sit that person down and lovingly confront them and say, hey, you have no grounds for divorce. And some of these individuals have been good friends of mine, and you know what it did? It ruined our relationship. Not because I was harsh, not because uh, I was condescending or pharisaical, but I simply said, here's what God says in a spirit of love. They didn't want to hear the truth. And so listen, sometimes when we speak the truth, it often ruptures relationships. And by the way, what's true in relationships is true in the pulpit. In America today, pastors are not preaching the truth like they need to. Why? Because they're afraid of offending people. And the Bible says we need to speak the truth in a spirit of love, and pastors need to proclaim the truth boldly. This week I was on the internet and I happened to come across this quote from a pastor. I don't know where he lives, but I thought it was a wonderful quote. Here is what he said about the pulpits in America quote, Over the last few decades, Americans have seen the destruction of the institution of marriage between a man and a woman, the removal of God's word in several areas, and the blatant murdering of millions of babies. This is an indictment against America, and the pulpit is partially responsible. Our silence speaks volumes. The pulpit regulates the spiritual condition of God's people, which affects the nation. A lukewarm, sex-saturated culture and church simply reflects the lack of conviction in the pulpit as well as the pew. Sadly, many pastors are exchanging truth for passivity, boldness for cowardliness, conviction for comfort. They are not aflame with righteousness. We aim to be motivational speakers rather than preachers of righteousness. Pastors and Christian leaders alike must take responsibility for the spiritual health of today's church and the nation. We don't need more marketing plans, demographic studies, or giving campaigns. We need men filled with the Spirit of God, End quote. That's the truth. We need to hear the truth of God proclaimed. And sometimes it's not popular when you preach the truth in our culture. And again, we need to make sure we do it with a heart of love. But nevertheless, we cut to the chase when we speak the truth. It is not popular. People do not want to listen. And that's why Jesus said in John chapter 15, he said, do not be surprised if the world hates you. And that's true in the church. But here's the issue. Do we want to hear the truth? Sometimes if we're all honest, we don't like it when our spouse confronts us. We don't like it when our children point out things in our life. We don't like it when people in the church say, Hey, you know what? You're out of bounds here. we got to be willing to listen to the truth ourselves. You see, that's one of the characteristics of a son and daughter of God. Paul said... Have I spoken the truth to you and now I've alienated you because you don't want to hear what I have to say? You treated me with love, even nursed me when I was sick, but now all of a sudden I'm no longer an angel of God, Christ Jesus himself. Now you've changed your tune towards me. You've lost, as it were, that loving feeling. Well, there's another characteristic of a son and daughter of God, and that is this. They are discerning with false teachers. They are discerning with false teachers. Now remember, false teachers don't speak the truth, but true teachers speak the truth. Look what he says in verse 17. Speaking of these false teachers, these Judaizers, they eagerly seek you. These Judaizers were seeking out the Galatians. They wanted converts. They eagerly seek you, not commendably. What does he mean that? Their motives are not right. They're wanting followers. But they wish to shut you out, So that you will seek them in other words what their motive was was they wanted these galatians to follow them and they wanted to cut them off from the apostle paul and they didn't want the apostle paul to have influence on them and so paul says they're seeking after you but their motives are not right they don't have a commendable motive they're not interested in you they want a notch under their belt yesterday i was having lunch with a good friend of mine And we were talking about diet and everything else. And I thought to myself, isn't it amazing when you get older, you talk about your diet and you talk about medicine you're taking. Some of you are laughing because you know what I'm talking about. And you know what he said to me? He said, man, I got to cut back in what I'm eating. We were eating barbecue. And he said, here's how I measure my weight. He says, when I can't pull my belt tighter... He says, I realize that I'm putting on weight. And he said, the other day I realized that I had to step back one of the holes that I'm putting on weight. He says, I had to remove the notch from my belt is what he was saying. And I thought to myself, that's exactly what these Judaizers were doing. The Galatians were simply another notch on their belt. They weren't interested in them. They were interested in their own egos. And he says in verse 18, but it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner. In other words, if you're seeking people out, if you have the right motive, that's okay, and not only when I am present with you. Paul is saying, look, it's good to seek out disciples, but you gotta make sure the motive is right. And Paul says, when I'm present with you, Galatians, or I'm away from you, he says, my motive is pure. And so, here is the characteristic of a son and daughter of God, is they are on guard, they are discerning against false teachers. What Paul is doing here is he's warning them of their need to be on guard against these Judaizers. What he's doing is he's debunking their fraudulent motives. And this is typical of false teachers. False teachers do not have the right motive. They don't care about the sheep. What they want to do is they want to fleece the flock. They want to make merchandise out of people. And listen, we are in a culture where false teachers thrive. Because we live in a prosperous culture and so you have all these prosperity teachers that are coming on TV telling you God wants everyone healthy and wealthy. And there is a half truth to what they're saying because listen, false teachers often don't come to you and say, I'm a false teacher. What they do is they mix enough truth with enough error so that you are deceived. But what happens is when you read the fine print, you realize that what they're teaching is not biblical. And I'm not saying everybody on television is a false teacher. But typically, false teachers are motivated by four things. You'll notice them up on the screen. Number one, they're motivated by sex. Secondly, they're motivated by sloth. Thirdly, they're motivated by silver. And fourthly, they're motivated by self. Those are the four motivations that often drive false teachers. Sex, sloth, silver, and self. They appear to be genuine, but they're not. And that's why you and I, it's so critical that we're Berean Christians, that we know the word of God, we're in the word of God, and obviously you want to be in a good local church. I tell new Christians this all the time, get grounded. Know the word of God. First John chapter four says that we're to test the spirits to see whether they're from God. How do we test the spirits? We test it by the word of God. The word of God is a filter. I remember when I lived in New Jersey and all three of my daughters were at home. Of course, I have no hair, and all my daughters and my wife, they have hair. And I remember probably on a monthly basis, my drain was clogging up. And I thought, man, this is a real travesty here. And so I'm putting liquid Drano down there and finally clear up. Well, then somebody told me about this snake thing that they have at Home Depot. And so I took this snake thing and I fished it all the way down and I would pull up all that stuff. I mean, there was enough hair coming out of there to make a toupee for me. (laughs) But I remember prior to getting that snake thing, I tried this filter. It didn't work. It was like a filter that I put on the drain. And what would happen was, I hoped it would happen, is it would catch all the hair and it would not go down the drain and that did not work. Well, see, that's what the Bible is like. The Bible is a filter. And when I hear something, I need to filter it through the Word of God. But that presupposes that I know the Word of God. That presupposes that I'm a man and a woman of the word and I know correct doctrine. And as John has preached to you throughout the years is that you and I got to get beyond just the milk of the word. The Bible talks about being in the meat of the word. That's one of the characteristics of a mature Christian is they go beyond the milk of the word to the meat of the word. And so he says here, sons and daughters of God, they are discerning against false teachers. What Paul does is he speaks the truth, and he warns them about the false teachers, and he basically says their motives are not right. They're basically wanting another notch under their belt. They're wanting to recruit you, you Galatians, and they want to shut you off from me because they don't want you to be influenced by me. And Paul says, no, don't listen to them. Well, there's a fifth characteristic of a son and daughter of God, and that is this. They grow into Christlikeness. They grow into Christlikeness. Notice what he says in verse 19. He says, My children, again, this is a term of endearment here, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. He says, But I wish to be present with you now, verse 20, and to change my tone. For I am perplexed about you. Paul says, you know what? I wish I could be there personally to deal with you in a more intimate manner. He says, because you perplex me. And the Greek word there means I'm at my wit's end with you. But I want you to notice what he says here. He says, I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. Paul's passion, unlike the false teachers, was he wanted these children of God, these adopted children, he wanted them to become like Jesus Christ. That was his passion. And by the way, that is always the desire of a true shepherd who knows the word of God, who has the heart of God, is he wants to see God's people grow and become more like Christ. In fact, the word here, Christ formed in you, is the word we get morph. You know, when something morphs from one thing to another, it's changing. And so here's the question this morning that I had to ask myself, and I'm asking you, are you morphing into becoming more like Jesus Christ in terms of your character? That's the goal of the Christian life. That's the pursuit of the Christian life. You want a definition of maturity? Maturity is not just knowledge. Maturity is becoming like Jesus Christ. Knowledge is what leads to the maturity. But the standard of maturity, the benchmark of maturity, the measurement of maturity is, am I becoming more like Christ in my attitudes and my actions? Now, if you're like me, sometimes you see progress and sometimes you see regression. We're all in this pattern of making progress and sometimes regressing. Listen, I'm not where I need to be, but I'm not where I used to be. Do you see growth in your Christian life? And you know what Paul uses the analogy? He is so passionate about them becoming like Christ, he says, I'm like a woman in labor pain. Now, listen, I have three daughters. Two of them have children. My wife obviously had three daughters. And I've seen labor pain. I've never experienced it. A man can't understand what it means for a woman to go through labor pain, but it's very painful. And today, they give women an epidural which really blunts the pain. In fact, I looked this up and I found some humorous responses that men have had to their wives in labor. And this gives you an indication that men just don't understand. One woman said this, when the nurses asked how bad the pain was from one to 10, and I said 10, my husband said, oh, come on, it can't be that bad. (laughs) About 30 minutes after our son was born, a lady said, She said, a full 24 hours of labor, my husband told me he was going to head home for a bit because he was exhausted. (laughs) Your wife would lose her sanctification at that point. (laughs) One woman said, I was fully dilated after 18 hours, and my husband said, you think you could hold out pushing until I grab some breakfast? (laughs) One woman said, when we were out to a movie when my contraction started... Since our house is on the way to the hospital, we stopped to get our bags. I waited in the car while my husband went in the house. Five minutes go by, 10 minutes go by, 15 minutes go by, I'm having worse contractions. He finally comes back, as I was about to go in and investigate, and she said what I mean by investigate is I was gonna commit bodily harm to him. And he explained to me the reason he took so long was he had food stuck in his teeth, so he'd been trying to floss it out. She said, yeah, what a genius. <laughs> labor pains. Paul literally wanted the Galatians to become like Christ. He says, it's as if I'm in this labor pain. I'm struggling, I'm groaning, and I'm suffering because I want you to become more like Jesus Christ. Did you see, That's the characteristic of a son and daughter of God, is their number one pursuit is to become like Jesus. We measure everything against that. When I do something I shouldn't, I say, you know what, Lord, that didn't please you. Why? Because it's not what Jesus would do. And this is a constant struggle in our life. But here's the good news. The Bible says we are going to become like Christ when we are glorified. See, glorification is that state when I'm fully like Jesus Christ, I'm going to bear his image throughout all eternity. Now, we're not going to look like Jesus because in heaven, we're all going to maintain our own identities. But we're going to be like Jesus in terms of moral perfection. And you and I are not going to have that battle with sin anymore. But see, it's an ongoing process. And if you and I are not in scripture, we're not in the word, we're not in fellowship, we're not in ministry, we're not serving God, what happens is we end up slowing that process of becoming like Jesus Christ. Now, are you listening? Say amen. Coming to church on Sunday is not enough to become like Christ. Yes, it will help. Yes, it will contribute to that. But you have to be in the word. You have to be in prayer. And you have to seek out the Lord Jesus Christ. Be connected in small groups. You see, all of this contributes to me becoming more like Jesus Christ. I remember when I was in high school, ninth grade, I played football. And we had one year in Miami. This is in August when it's very, very humid. I remember going out to practice at 7 in the morning and I was doing stretches and the sweat was just dripping off my face with my helmet on. I remember that year they had to give us extended breaks because the humidity was so bad. And during our three-day a practices, we would often go over to someone's house and we would hang out until the next practice. And I went over to this upperclassman's house. His name was Lou Frazier. He's a committed Christian. And he had like six or seven brothers and sisters. And I remember when I walked into his living room, up in his living room were pictures of all of the kids. And there were pictures from the time they were infants, their first year, second year, third year, all the way up until high school, you could see the progression of growth. And they literally covered the four corners of the wall. All these pictures where you could see the progression. And you see, people should see the progression in our life. They should see the growth. Yeah, you're going to have your faults, your failures. You're going to have your character weaknesses. We all do. We all blow it. We all fail. None of us are perfect. But do people see the image of Christ in you? Do they see a difference? And so Paul says, sons and daughters of God pursue Christlikeness. Well, there's one more this morning that the Apostle Paul shares with the Galatians in terms of what sons and daughters are like and that is they walk in freedom. Sons and daughters of God walk in freedom. Now this passage I'm going to share with you is a very complicated passage. I'm going to break it down for you simply. Those of you who have read it before probably said I have no idea what that's talking about so let me move on. Well let me explain the background of the passage and then we're going to get into the passage itself. If you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, I believe chapter 16 and chapter 21, the story is told about Sarah and Hagar. Now let me present the picture to you. If you remember Abraham and Sarah, God promised them that they would have a son. And Abraham was 100 years old, Sarah was 90 years old. They were beyond the age of childbearing. And God promised them that they would have a son. And of course they didn't believe it initially, but then of course the Bible says they trusted in God and they believed God's promise. Well, whenever God promises something, sometimes God doesn't deliver right away because it's a test of our faith. And so years went by, and they saw no child. They they, they didn't see Isaac. He was the child of promise. And so Sarah came up with an ingenious idea. She said, honey, I got a maidservant here that we picked up from Egypt. Her name is Hagar. Hagar. How about we have a child through her? Now you say, well, why would she do this? Well, this was a common cultural custom in that day. It wasn't God's ideal because God intended one man for one woman. But of course, when she suggested this, Abraham probably wasn't going to turn it down. And so Abraham decides to be intimate with Hagar, and they produce a son by the name of Ishmael. Now you have to understand, Ishmael was produced in the flesh. I don't mean physically, but this was the strategy of Abraham and the strategy of Sarah. This was not God's design. He never intended this to happen. It wasn't his perfect will. It was his permissive will. Now, you and I know that the Arab race has come out of Ishmael. And so this was done in the power of the flesh. Well, God finally fulfills his promise to Abraham and Sarah a year later, and Isaac is born. Now, Isaac was done by the power of the Spirit because God promised Isaac, and God fulfilled that promise through supernatural power because they were beyond the age of bearing children, and so God gives them Isaac. Now, remember what happens in the story if you read Genesis 16 and 21. Sarah becomes irritated with Ishmael and Hagar because Hagar probably was nagging her, And then finally, and I'm summarizing the story here, Sarah ends up pushing out Hagar and Ishmael. She tells Abraham, look, you got to tell them to go. They can't hang around here. Abraham was heartbroken because he loved Ishmael, but God told Abraham, do what Sarah says, and so they basically expel Hagar and Ishmael. Now, this story illustrates two ways of salvation. Hagar and Ishmael represents salvation by good works. Isaac and Sarah represent salvation by faith alone. Hagar and Ishmael represents earning your salvation, whereas Isaac and Sarah represent salvation by the power of God by faith alone. Now with that background, let's read the passage, and I'll show you how it breaks down. He says this in verse 21, Tell me, you who want to be under the law, and that's what the Galatians were thinking of when the Judaizers were deceiving them. He says, you want to listen to those Judaizers who are telling you to be under the law? He says in verse 22, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman, that's Hagar, and one by the free woman, that's Sarah. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the what? Flesh, human effort, human design. And the son by the free woman Through the promise that is by the power of God and by faith, God gave them Isaac supernaturally. And then he says in verse 24, taking that story, he's going to apply it allegorically. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants. Now, Paul is not advocating here interpreting the Bible allegorically. And what that means is you don't look for hidden meanings in the Bible. This is really an illustration. The Apostle Paul had the power to do this, but we normally don't go to the Bible and say, hey, the other day I read about Noah's ark, and Noah built three decks on the ark. And you know what those three decks represent? They represent justification, sanctification, and glorification. Uh, No, they don't. What those three decks represent are three decks, you don't read the Bible allegorically and look for hidden meanings. So that's not what Paul is advocating here. However, he's using this story of Hagar and Sarah, of Ishmael and Isaac. He's using it as an illustration. And here's what he says in verse 24. This allegorically speaking for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this is, verse 25, now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother for it is written, and he quotes here Isaiah 54, one, rejoice barren woman who does not bear, break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for more numerous are the children of the desolate than the one who has a husband. And then he says in verse 28, and you brethren, that is the Galatians, like Isaac, are children of promise. Abraham's children, he says in verse 29, but as at that time he who was born according to the flesh, that would be Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, that would be Isaac, so it is now also. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman, So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. You say, what is he talking about there? I'm glad you asked. Look at the screen here. Now, go to the next slide. Here's what he mentions in this parable. There are two women, Sarah versus Hagar. There are two sons, Isaac versus Ishmael. There are two covenants he mentions, the Mosaic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant. There are two cities he mentions, Earthly Jerusalem versus the heavenly Jerusalem. Next slide. There are two principles he mentions in this passage, law and promise. There are two powers, flesh versus the spirit, and there are two applications, free versus slave. You say, okay, I understand that, but what's the point of the passage? Here it is right here. Hagar represents the Judaizers. Sarah represents believers, the Galatian believers in that context. Hagar and the Judaizers represent Ishmael, the Mosaic Covenant, which said, do this or you die. It corresponds to the earthly Jerusalem because in Jerusalem, that's where the religious leaders were. That's where you had all that Phariseeism. Also under Hagar and the Judaizers, you have the law, which condemns. You have the flesh. You have slavery. And ultimately, Hagar and the Judaizers, they represent a work salvation. On the other hand, Sarah represents what? Isaac, the Abrahamic covenant, the heavenly Jerusalem, the promise and grace, not law, instead of the flesh. That represents the spirit, freedom, and faith alone, salvation. And what he's saying here is the two cannot coexist. Hagar and Sarah cannot coexist together. That's why Sarah said, cast the bondwoman out. Get rid of her. And you know what Paul is saying to the Galatians here? Which child or which children do you identify with? Are you a child of the Judaizers? And the Judaizers represent who? Hagar. Because that's salvation by human effort. When Sarah suggested that Abraham sleep with Hagar, that was by human effort, that was by human design, and it was not something that God had commanded them to do. It was done in the flesh, That's what the Judaizers were saying. You're saved by faith plus keeping the law of Moses. That's work salvation. Paul says, do you belong to Hagar and the Judaizers or are you like Sarah? Sarah represents the power of the spirit because God promised Abraham and Sarah, you will have a child in your own age. I will bring it about and I will do it by my power and my strength. You see, that's salvation by faith alone. We cannot earn our salvation. It's done by the power of God. And so ultimately, what he's saying here is, who do you identify with? One represents law and bondage. The other one represents freedom. And that's why children of God, sons and daughters of God, they walk in spiritual freedom. They're free from the law not free from the law in that I don't obey God's moral commands, but I'm free from the law in terms of it trying to merit my salvation. Because notice what he says as he closes here in verse 1 of chapter 5. And this verse right here in chapter 5 really carries over from chapter 4. It was for freedom, see that word freedom there? It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm And do not be subject again to a yoke of what? Slavery. Don't identify with Hagar and Ishmael. He says identify with Sarah and Abraham. He says you are free in Christ. Walk in spiritual freedom. And so listen, sons and daughters of God, they walk in spiritual freedom. What does it mean to walk in spiritual freedom? It simply means this. I do not have to earn my way to heaven. See, that's bondage. Because I never know if I live up to God's standards or God's expectations. A person who knows Christ simply comes to Jesus and says, God, I am bankrupt spiritually. I don't have anything to offer you. I cannot merit or earn my way to heaven. But I do believe your son died for me and rose from the dead. And when you trust in Jesus Christ, the Bible says God forgives you of all your sin. You see, that's spiritual freedom. And listen, in our culture today, many people are shackled. They're shackled by their own sin. They're shackled by the law. They're in bondage. And many people don't know if they're going to get to heaven when they die, if they even believe in heaven. But you and I have the keys that can help set them free, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so children of God, sons and daughters of God, what are the characteristics? Sons and daughters of God listen to the truth, and they speak the truth. Sons and daughters of God are discerning with false teachers. They're on guard. They don't get victimized by false teachers. Sons and daughters of God seek to grow into Christlikeness. And then finally, sons and daughters of God walk in spiritual freedom. Are you free this morning? Do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? If not, we want to invite you to come and to let us know so that we can lead you into that relationship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for reminding us of our spiritual standing before you, our status, that we are sons and daughters of God, that we have royal blood flowing through our veins. And Father, I pray that we would properly represent you as sons and daughters. Father, help us to speak the truth, especially to our nation. Help us, Lord, to do it in a spirit of love but nevertheless to speak the truth. And I pray, Father, Lord God, that we would all here at Calvary Chapel have a passion to grow like Christ, to know Him and to make Him known. And Father, I pray that we would be discerning and on guard against false teachers. As Lord, we see false doctrine flowing through books and radio and social media and television. It's all around. And Lord, You call us to know Your Word and to be able, Lord God, to Fetter out that which is false. And Father, thank you for calling us into spiritual freedom to walk in that, to be sons and daughters of Sarah and not sons and daughters of Hagar. Father, we thank you for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen.